With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And we are live at the Standing Room Spartans podcast. Your host, Kevin Parker, your co-host, Scott Martin, here on a Monday morning, as always, on the heels of what I hope is an exciting uh, a, a championship weekend, championship Sunday in the NFL. We're recording this a couple hours before kickoff in the Bengals-Chiefs game. Uh, if you don't see me on Twitter for a little while, it's because the Bengals and the 49ers have won, and I am taking my winnings on a holiday in Aruba. And uh, you'll never see me again, possibly. So that's that's what I got going on. Scott, uh, Sunday afternoon here. How we doing? Two days ago for the listeners, big basketball game, Michigan, Michigan State. Uh, and it was great. And I'm still kind of glowing from that. It's Sunday morning as we record. So we're we're not even 24 hours removed from tip for that game. So I'm feeling great. It was it an awesome game. One. Everything you could hope for out of a Michigan-Michigan State hoops game. Borderline blowout win. Juwan Howard had a messy press conference. They Their freshmen were talking trash as time was expiring. Keon Coleman scored on their starters. <laughs> I don't know how you could ask for a more picture-perfect basketball win. Um, feeling great, and we got great football on today. It's not our favorite. It's not college football, but we got a lot of action today. Uh, we'll be messing around on DraftKings throughout the day. Uh, there's a lot of fun action out there and yeah, I mean, what more could you ask for? Like you said, it's Monday. So the folks already know kind of where we're at with this, but I mean, before this isn't a possibility anymore, the Bengals and the 49ers in the Super Bowl has to be like <laughs> Roger Goodell's worst nightmare, right? Oh God. Yeah. And I, I, mean, I wonder you got what the kind potential of odds you would have gotten on that before the season get, or the Chiefs and the Rams, the Rams with the hometown Super Bowl. I mean, what could be more perfect for the NFL? And then Joe Burrow and Jimmy Garoppolo walk walk in in two weeks. The, right. The Rams like moved to LA solely for this purpose for the NFL, for big games in Los Angeles, huge market. Now you have a chance to get them to host a Super Bowl. Yeah. And then Jimmy G just waltzes in throws for like 180 yards and two picks and, and moves on that would be glorious uh, i would absolutely love it no i i want to go back though um we'll do you know we don't 
We don't spend a whole lot of time doing football guys talk basketball, but this is one I definitely want to spend a little bit of time on. Uh, obviously, we got a little extra juice uh, in the Michigan game, as we always do. Max Christie, he's he's finding Oof. himself a little bit. If that becomes a thing, I think the ceiling definitely raises for this team. Like you've got you've got a couple guards that can push the ball up the floor, and then if you get Christie, who finds his his shot a little more consistently. Gabe Brown can shoot it. Malik Hall can stretch it out there. Um, suddenly this offense becomes really, really, I don't want to say scary, but especially out in the open court, um, the, the ceiling definitely raises if, if Max Christie can keep up what we saw for, for pretty good stretches of that game. That, that was really impressive. Yeah. He, he looks ready to go. You had, the 2019-20 season when Cassius Winston and Xavier Tillman were riding out their uh, last days as Spartans, you had that stretch with Rocket Watts, right, where, like, all season, frustrating, inconsistent, showed flashes. Max Christie's probably had a little bit better season, but generally the same kind of trend. And then potentially, you know, Rocket had that that run the last few games of the regular season and then um, it was looking great. We're like, this is the final piece to put everything together to make a run in March. If Christy, if Christie can do that for us this season, I think it'll be great. Consistency's been the problem with this team. It's not that they don't have the ability. We've seen the ability in games like Saturday. It's just consistency. So now we know what Max can do. We he was our best player on Saturday, and if he can be our one of our best players every game. With consistency, I think, like you said, raises our ceiling. We hopefully will get a normal March this year with a pretty good team. So I know last season was a mess. We made it to the dance barely. Yeah. Just kind of we're ready to move on, keep the street going and move on. This season, it's one of those where it's like, I don't think we're going to have too much like contender chatter, but we can go into March feeling like we have a chance to make a run or two. So uh, yeah, it's a fun team. A lot of energy, a lot of personalities. I think Izzo really enjoys coaching this team, even though they've been kind of frustrating at times. Um, it just feels like kind of an authentic Izzo team. Yeah, I was just going to say, it does. It, it feels like an Izzo team that you head into March and things start clicking a little bit in like the Big Ten tournament. And by the time the bracket's released, you're like, this is an Elite Eight run possibly a surprise final four run it's just got that kind of gritty guards it's got enough production from the big men and if they can step it up a little bit like you've you really have if you look in a vacuum you have all of the elements you've got wing scorers you've got not consistent but you've got good impressive guard play at times and then you've got that low post shot blocker who can erase anything in the in the paint um, could make a run. Let's let's they just see. need it's, that. It's exciting. I, well, it's interesting. The, the last thing I get hung up on on this team, and, and people have made the point, like there's no alpha, there's no like crunch time, ball in mm-hmm. his hands, give him ISO and let him try, guy. But at the same time, could it work without him? Right, because then you can't put your best defender on the best player. You know, the opponent can't put their best defender on him and then make it a one on one. You got to defend the whole court. So. Right, like It'll thinking be about when uh, was it Sweet Sixteen, when uh, Corey Lucius hit that three. Like that was one of those teams where there wasn't a guy, and you just it was um, you know the other team just has no idea who they have to guard 
it almost makes it easier if there's that guy, right? It's just like, all right, double this guy, make somebody else beat us. And now you're going into an inbounds play and you're like, I don't know where the hell this thing's going. And we got to just try to man up everybody and hope for the best. So yeah, it's, it's a fun team though. It's, it's starting to come together a little bit frustrating at times and, and uh, the peaks I think are going to be a lot of fun. So I don't know. Football guys talk basketball. Uh, I think was uh, it was it was a fun weekend for it. Yeah, we had a lot of material. Uh, good game. Ten games left in the regular season. A lot of tough ones. So we'll uh, we'll keep touching on it on a weekly basis. See how things play out. Yeah. So so I'll be transparent here. Uh, the kind folks, the great folks at DraftKings. I don't have an updated ad read. I still have from the championship week. So. Uh, bear with me here. What I'm going to tell you is that our promo code for the entire season hasn't changed. It's still TPPN for the Pigskin Podcast Network. So, you know, the actual promotions and stuff have have moved around a little bit. But um, regardless, it's always going to be something good. So just kind of toss it in there and see what happens. But uh, as we stand here, the the current uh, the current promotion is for 56 to one odds on a an NFL championship game. Now the championship game of course as you're listening has already been played but that's okay. That'll just give you a little glimmer into what will happen for the Super Bowl. I guarantee you DraftKings is going to do something fantastic. So if you are a new customer make sure you sign up use that promo code TPPN download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Promo code TPPN for the Pigskin Podcast Network of which we're a proud member. Get 56 to 1 odds on any NFL team. Bet just $5, win 280 in free bets. If your team wins, promo code TPPN for uh, 56 to 1 odds at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only, minimum $5 deposit. $1 wager required, one per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Don't be afraid to get in on some of those same game parlays as well. Last weekend, I made a pretty good chunk of change uh, doing that. So only as you're listening, man, we have one football game left. It's, it's, it's coming down to the wire here. We got a couple weeks to prep for it, but uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of starting to sink in that football season's almost over and, and we're going to have to shift our focus to basketball, I guess. I don't know. Not on this podcast, though. We are a Michigan State football podcast. We always will be a Michigan State football podcast, and we've got some Michigan State football news to talk about. So uh, we'll start with some administrative stuff in the program. Chris Kapilovich, new contract, will pay him upwards of a million dollars a year. Uh, There was some news uh, back uh, a couple weeks ago. I don't remember exactly when this was that Lincoln Riley was trying to poach him over to USC. And the report was that Kapilovich turned it down, didn't even request a new contract for Michigan State at the time, like didn't use it as leverage for more money. He just said, no, I'm, I'm happy where I am. Thanks for the offer, but no thanks. Well, we're a loyal, uh, a loyal group here at Michigan State, so we ended up giving him a new contract anyway. But Kapilovich sticks around. Uh, looks like he's here with the long haul for Mel Tucker. We talked about it many times now that Kapilovich kind of seemed like from day one, and especially now that Chris Kapilovich might be the single most important 
staff member other than Mel Tucker here. And, and Mel Tucker really clearly values him as such. So Kapilovich, new contract. Scott, what do you think? Well, it's great. I mean, this is a guy that we've talked about before as potentially a target for other programs, whether that's as a head coach. I don't know if that's his intention or just a more involved role on an offensive staff. Uh, or just to get paid more, right? Or a bigger, prominent, more prominent program, whatever it might be. We were always a little bit, um, not nervous, but you know, we had our eyes on him as a guy that other programs might make a run at. Him getting an extension, just like Mel Tucker getting an extension, shows that mutual commitment towards the program that we're building. And I do think he is our most important position coach he's a little bit more than a position coach, right? He's a run game coordinator. He has a big hand in the offense, but he's not a coordinator. Um, as far as offense and defense, I, I think he's our most important position group, especially with that offensive line, which needs a great coach right now as they're trying to build it back to some of those offensive lines we had five, 10 years ago. Um, it's great. It's great. I love what coach cap is doing. The players love him. Recruits really speak highly of him. I think it's a great guy to keep around and, um, yeah, we just keep building. And speaking of the offensive line, another transfer portal entry from Michigan State, Jacob Asaya, uh, offensive lineman. He was a redshirt junior out of Bishop Gorman. Uh, very notable as a Michigan State player specifically. He was the grandson of Bob Apiza, former Michigan State All-American uh maybe a college football hall of famer. Uh, I'd have to check on that, but he was um, one of the first uh, Polynesian players in college football back in the sixties, won a couple national titles with Michigan state as a fullback. So uh, Jacob Asaya, grandson of Baba Pisa is entering the portal. We'll see where he ends up. He was one of the higher rated guys in his recruiting class a few years back. So um, I know that was a few years ago. Hasn't really played a whole lot outside of special teams since then, but uh, we'll see where he ends up. Best of luck to Jacob. Um, beyond that, some some news from guys who were on the roster who will not be on the roster next year. Connor Hayward, Jalen Naylor, both have received their official NFL Combine invites. So both of those guys are heading to the Combine. Both of those guys are going to get a chance to showcase their athletic ability on uh, the field over there at Lucas oil in Indianapolis and arguably more importantly, get a chance to, to do some face-to-face one-on-one interviews with NFL teams, uh, get a chance to really sit down. You know, a lot of those interviews, the questions get leaked and there's some questionable stuff that they get into. But at the end of the day, for the players who are invited, uh, it's a really good opportunity to build those connections and, and show some teams why uh, beyond just the athletic stuff, uh, why they should take a chance on them. So my question to you is, Scott, I, I have a couple over-unders, 40-yard dash over-under. They're going to be set at very different numbers, obviously, for these two players. So uh, we'll start with Jalen Naylor. We'll start with the fast guy here, Speedy Naylor. You, you've got, uh, we've got a couple months here before the combine, so plenty of time, but I just want to kind of throw it out there now. Uh, maybe we'll revisit it and see if your answer, ch- answer changes. Jalen Naylor, 40-yard dash time over under 4.4 seconds flat, 
it's funny when you were bringing this up, I was thinking what, 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 what prop is he going to give me? And I, I was thinking exactly <laughs> this one at exactly 4.4. Um, now I'm going to give you Jalen Naylor bench press reps over under three and a half. No. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, over that, um, screw it. I'm going to go under, I think Jalen Naylor, he's, into he's, the four threes. A, he's got the track background. He, clearly still fast he knows how to train for speed probably as well as any recruit um or any nfl prospect prospect yeah we're there they turn from recruits to prospects that's yeah the, uh... so give me the under i i don't know i mean that's really fast obviously but he's also really fast so the thing working in his favor is you mentioned it the track background um a lot of these guys don't have that and half of the deal with the 40 yard dash is getting into that sprinter stance and getting off the block. Like it's not really obviously a natural football thing. So for guys who played wide receiver their whole life and have never stepped onto a track, you know, like that start is so important. So he's got a little leg up there. I think he's got a shot to creep into the, 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 the high four threes, I guess it would be four, three, seven, four, three, eight. Uh, we'll, we'll see what he ends up testing at the other one, Connor Hayward, not going to be a four, three guy. Uh, I will give you the over under 40 yard dash for Connor Hayward right now today. I'm going to do some more research for this before the combine, but just off the top of my head, I'm going four, eight flat 4.8 seconds. I'm going to go over. I, he's just not a speed guy. Like I, I don't know. We haven't seen Connor Hayward like with an open field all that much, right? Usually he's like, there's one or two guys coming down and he's just getting ready to lower the shoulder. You don't really see him just highway in front of him, turn on the jets. Not to say he can't. I just, we didn't, we haven't seen it. Remember, I'm going to go over. 20... I think he'll be in like the four nines. I think under five is probably a pretty solid it's, target safe, for him. Yeah. I mean, it's not great, obviously, but he's also not trying. He's not trying to use speed to get him a job in the NFL. It never the, hurts to be fast, but it's not his main selling point. The offensive linemen are really the only guys going over five. I mean, it, he's still a, a quote unquote skill player. You remember uh, 2019? He had that like 70 yard touchdown run against Maryland. And I remember watching it and you're just waiting for like, okay, where's the guy to come up from behind and, and bring him down? Where's the, where's the pursuit angle here? It, it just never happened. And that was first of all, just generally shocking to me that nobody caught him and, and a sign of why Maryland football is, is what it is right now. But um, yeah, Connor Hayward, I, I would go under four. I think he's going to be like a four, seven, five kind of guy. I feel like that that's about where he's going. But again, I'll, I'll do some research. I'm going to find some kind of comparable guys, fullbacks in the NFL, slower tight ends in the NFL, and kind of see what what a typical 40-yard dash would be for that profile. And, and we'll get it narrowed down a little bit more. But figured we'd have some fun with that, those two guys going to the combine here in a couple months. Other than that, we had uh, our junior day here this weekend. So a, a second junior day, I guess there's a lot of these recruiting events that all start blending together, but a lot of guys on campus for uh, the class of 2023, as well as the class of 2024. So they got an opportunity to be around the facilities, to meet the coaches, 
you had a lot of big names there. There were one, two, three, four, five, six. Seven. There were double-digit four-star guys in the next two classes. Uh, potential transfer portal running back uh, out of Colorado, Jarek Broussard, former Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year. He was in attendance here this weekend. So uh, Cole Cabana is a, is a local running back that has made a lot of noise recently and, and is interested there was a picture we were sending around of uh, defensive end Eno Etta, who is a four-star, high four-star guy. And we just couldn't find a helmet that fit for him for whatever reason. His picture looks hilarious. But uh, yeah, big, big weekend for the recruiting side of it. Uh, Scott, anything that you were taking out of the weekend or had of any uh, expectations here as we move forward? It was just exciting to see the list of prospects, 23 guys, 24 guys, um, you know, highly rated, not rated, whatever it is. There's just so much momentum around getting guys to um, to campus right now. And I think we touched on it last week, but just the quality of, of recruits that are coming to, that are just giving us the time of day. I mean, so many guys in the top 200 now in this 23 class, it'll be the same in the 24 class last year you had some top 300 guys. We had a few top 300 recruits, but it's just elevating. It's taking a step up, which obviously speaks to the fact that while we think we're on the up and up players agree, you know, prospects recruits, no, I'm interchanging them recruits agree. Uh, and it's exciting. And obviously we'll have to see where this, where this class lands, but we're right in the thick of things with high four-star, five-star guys, Dante Moore. Coach Tucker was down at King the other day. Dante Moore was back on campus for apparently like the sixth time in the last few months. Um, a lot can happen in recruiting, obviously, and maybe this class won't be what I think it will be, but I think the momentum continues. I'm hoping some commitments start to roll in the next couple months, um, and, and, and they will, uh, but – yeah, it's, it's really exciting. Yeah, it's, it's fun seeing guys like Steve Wiltfung on 24-7 writing articles about all the big names that were on campus at Michigan State this weekend. It's, you know, the national guys are kind of on notice about what Michigan State, what Mel Tucker's doing on the recruiting side. So like you said, kind of keep an eye on it. There's definitely going to be some commitments that come through. I'm I'm trying to dip my toes more and more into this. I mean, we we have a, a Michigan State football podcast. Now we also both have full time jobs, and for those of you who, as a hobby, are deep diving into recruiting, like God bless you. I don't know how you have the time for it. I've always been a when the guys commit, then I'll dig deep. I'll, I'll check out the offers. I'll watch their highlight tapes on huddle. I'll do the whole thing. Once they commit for some of the guys, once we're down to a top three, top five, all right, now we'll start paying attention. I'm, I'm trying, and this is for you guys, the listeners. Uh, I'm, I'm really trying to get more into it. It's just, it's really tough, man. You go through like the VIP threads on, um, on 24 seven and within a day and a half, there's like 16 posts about this guy's visiting in a couple weeks. And this guy has comments about his, I don't know how you guys keep up with it. God bless you. I'm trying. But uh, when, when we start getting some noise, when we start getting some guys heated up top threes, top fives that Michigan state is in, we'll, we'll start talking about those guys. 
But as of right now, with wide open fields, guys have like their top 11 schools and Michigan State's in there. Like That's not really worth my time, to be honest. But last last bit of news here before we get to the main event, the Michigan State football superlatives coming off the 2021 season. There was some news, Scott. I don't know how much you gave credit to it. I don't know how much you paid attention to it or how much it uh, really affected your week. But there was some news. A lot of people were, were up in arms. A lot of people were really happy about the Big Ten meeting and just basically figuring out what we're doing for the next few years. A lot of ideas were tossed around the idea of removing the divisions altogether, the idea of, of going down from nine conference games down to eight conference games, some of that alliance talk from last year, some of that starting to resurface here with some basically agreements between PAC 12 and ACC schools to uh, schedule non-conference games. Uh, Some of it I like, some of it I don't like. I want to start, we'll, I'll get your thoughts here, but I do want to make sure that I get to the removing divisions thing. I really don't like because I, I watch the big 12 and it's just, it's, it's odd. It it's weird, especially in a conference with 14 teams to not have any divisions. It just doesn't look right just aesthetically and, and everything. But the thing, the biggest problem I have with it is part of what makes college football great. And I talk about this in the context of playoff expansion all the time, but in, in this context of removing divisions from, uh, from the big 10, I don't think people are really realizing what that means because you're still going to have a conference title game and you can say, well, we, we didn't have divisions before 15 years ago or whatever it was, but we also didn't have a conference championship game. And that means you didn't have any rematches. And I think that's really important because look from once in a, once in a blue moon rivals, if they meet in a playoff game, if they meet in a title game, if they're in opposite divisions within their conference and they meet in a, in a conference title game, then you know what? Like, so be it. But one of the beautiful things about college football is the rivalries and for Michigan fans, I know none of you are listening, but imagine being a Michigan fan and you finally, you finally slayed the dragon. You beat Ohio state at the big house. Everybody's there crowd, you know, like people are on the field, Jim Harbaugh's smiling around, looking up to the heavens, you know, just everybody's soaking it in. You finally beat Ohio state. And what would have happened this year if, if you had no divisions, all right, go beat them again next week with higher stakes. It it wouldn't have, I don't want to say it wouldn't have mattered because it's Michigan, Ohio state. Of course it matters, but it would have been diminished significantly. And I don't think you can argue against that. What if you believe that that's a huge problem or not, that's a different story, but you can't argue that it wouldn't have diminished that moment of Michigan finally beating Ohio state. And you think about like, imagine Michigan and Michigan state playing again for a conference title game. Like maybe some of you would enjoy that. I personally, it's not something where I'm like scared of playing them again. Like, I, I don't care. We'll beat your ass in Indy. We'll beat your ass in Ann Arbor. We'll beat your ass in Michigan state. I don't really care about that aspect. It's just when it's once a year in college football, you know, when that final whistle blows, when the clock hits zero, 
you have bragging rights for the next calendar year. And barring some crazy situation in the college football playoff or whatever, you have bragging rights for an entire year. And it's the only sport that has that, right? In the NFL, uh, you, you, your rivalries, you're playing a minimum twice a year, unless you see them in the playoffs, then sometimes three times a year. Uh, in, in college basketball, you're basically scheduled a home and home. Obviously, you know, certain situations can happen and teams can duck out of games if they want, but it's so cool in college football, the game ends for the next year. We own you. We own the state because we be in, I don't know, you would be removing a lot of that. Uh, because of the potential for rematches of rivalries and stuff like that. That's the biggest problem I have with it. Um, I don't know. There's going to be a lot tossed around. I I brought this up on Twitter. If we just went back to legends and leaders and removed the crappy name, I don't think we'd be having any of these problems. Like I'll pull it up here. It's, it's not great in audio format, but the legends was the top tier teams Michigan, Michigan State, Iowa, and then you had Minnesota, Nebraska, and Northwestern. The leaders, the other side of the conference, had the top-tier teams, Ohio State, Penn State, Wisconsin, and then you had Purdue, Indiana, Illinois. It was as well-balanced as the Big Ten could put together. And if we, if we just had that, I don't think we'd be having these discussions. Like you just blindly toss Rutgers and Maryland in there. I don't, neither of them affect anything enough to where it matters and everything would be fine. The the divisions would be balanced enough that the conference title games would be interesting every year. And I, I just don't think we'd be having these problems. So just go back to leaders and legends, rename them for the love of God. And uh, yeah, I don't think we'd be having these problems in the first place. Yeah, so my general thoughts, I, I tend to agree on eliminating divisions. It's just, I agree with you, that is, that we shouldn't. Um, it's just ugly. It's just awkward. It's hard to follow. It's, it's yeah, kind of clunky, it's right? Especially with 14 yeah. teams. And th- like you said, the divisions, you know you're going to play. Like, what's on the line in your division? A chance to go to the conference championship game, right? and you play everyone in your division who is competing for that one spot to get to the conference championship game. So you don't have any of that. Oh, well, they didn't play each other this year. You know, the second and third team in the standings didn't play each other this year, but you know, this team, you know, they're tied, but then you get into these awful tiebreakers of like records against common opponents and all that junk. And I get it. Sometimes that happens in divisions too, but that's only because, the head-to-head didn't settle it. You got a three-way tie, whatever. In this scenario, there's just way too many factors that aren't settled on the field that can determine who gets their shot, and I don't like it. I think everyone should get their chance to play all the teams they're competing for for that slot to get to Indy. That way, you eliminate that gray area. And, yeah, I think – I don't know why that we would need geographic divisions. I understand, like – all, all other things being equal, geographic just is kind of intuitive, but it's not like we're not already traveling all over the Midwest and the East Coast to go to games in our own division anyway, or crossover games. You obviously, if you go to something like Leaders and Legends, you have to have what they had, which was the um, the protected crossover game, right? 
So Michigan and Ohio State have to play each other. For Michigan State, if we if we were in the same divisions, maybe it's Penn State because it's that end of the year game, right? If they're trying to play into that, or maybe it's Ohio State also, although that'd be two crossovers for Ohio State. Um, but in that scenario, you always get that Ohio State Penn State game. You always get the Michigan Ohio State game if that's a protected crossover. You always get Michigan Michigan State. Wisconsin and Iowa would be a protected crossover. Indiana and Purdue, I think, are in the same division. So there's ways to maintain all the big games with level divisions. And I just don't understand what the downside is. Like geographically, it's not that big of a deal if we're going a little bit west instead of a little bit east. Right. Really, like you look at geographically, look at the new Big 12. Like you're going to have BYU and Central Florida playing conference games like they're two time zones apart so at this point the teams are flying private like it's there's enough money that that doesn't really matter the big 10 is condensed enough geographically that what the longest flight is probably like two and a half hours and i don't even know if it would be that long so if you are michigan would you like that setup because then you have to play your in-state rival for an arm wrestle for likely the top of the division, Iowa every other year will be flirting with it as well. But then you also have to play Ohio state every year. A lot of folks in your division don't. So you're essentially, if you're guaranteeing that matchup, you're essentially guaranteeing you're going to have one of the hardest schedules in your division. That's, that's the tricky thing. I was looking through this too, with the protected rivalries, no matter how you do it, right. If you do these pod systems that everybody has talked about and stuff, and it's just inherently certain teams are going to get screwed more than others, right? Michigan is going to be forced to play Michigan State and Ohio State every single year, who most years they're going to be two of the top Big Ten teams, right? And Michigan State, if we were to also protect Penn State, we're going to have to play Michigan and Penn State, where, you know, Indiana will have to play like, Purdue in Northwestern or something, you know, like the, the other part of that though, on on the other side is you look at the way I look at it. It's like college football is such an imbalanced sport in general that it almost kind of brings, it's like one little lever to pull to bring a little bit of parity, right? It's like, well, Michigan, you have an extra hundred million dollar budget compared to Indiana. So you have to play a little bit tougher schedule to get there. You know, like that's just kind of the way I look at it. If you have these rivalry games, the amount of money that you're bringing in because of the ratings and because of it's just, I don't know. I don't, I don't really feel bad for any team to play a tougher or easier schedule any given year. Yeah. And um, they can balance out their own schedule in non-conference, right? If you know, you're playing Ohio state every year, you don't have to schedule a top tier non-conference opponent right. because you know your schedule is strong enough as it is whereas if you're not playing Ohio State you got a weak conference schedule this year I don't know you throw the the non-conference schedule that they have this year for example Hawaii yeah. so, Yukon Western Michigan or whatever it is speaking of Western Michigan we can probably pivot off this now I think we've made our yeah. thoughts known uh week one 2022 season Michigan State hosting Western Michigan and it there will be a little family drama uh, it was announced this week that Western Michigan was hiring Peyton Thorne's father, Jeff Thorne, from, I think, North Central High School in Illinois, something like that, um, to be their offensive coordinator. So 
we will have on one sideline, Jeff Thorne, well, probably in the press box, Jeff Thorne calling the plays for Western. And on the other sideline or on the field, his son will be throwing the ball for Michigan State. So a little bit of a fun storyline to kick off the year. Yeah, and, and Jaden Reed played under Jeff Thorne as well. So those storylines are going to be flowing through that uh, broadcast, you know. it would. Be, we were just talking before, like imagining if Jeff Thorne were a defensive guy and you had Peyton Thorne going up, you know, the, the battle of the minds against his dad, defensive coordinator, who knows all of his weaknesses, and that would be fun. But uh, yeah, offensive coordinator of Western Michigan, Jeff Thorne, Peyton's dad. That's that's going to be a fun one heading into week one. So let's get to, before we, we make this a three-hour episode, we've got superlatives. We have finally done, we took a little bit longer than planned. We, we wanted to do this a couple weeks ago, but here we are. The 2021 Michigan State football superlatives, a, a fun way to kind of recap some of the big moments of this season some of the best plays players and uh we went through we had let's see uh, i don't can't count these off the quick time but we've got uh best offensive play defensive play best newcomer best breakout player unsung hero best position group assistant coach of the year best moment of the year best game of the year besides michigan uh, comeback player of the year, offensive player of the year, defensive player of the year. And uh, I think that was about it. So without further ado, let's get to these. We put them out on Twitter so you can check out the results if you would like, but we're going to read them here. So I guess if you trust us, you don't really need to. And uh, yeah, I, I was the one, I will say, uh, who nominated these. Scott, if you have any that come up that you say, you know, I think you should have put this one in. Uh, feel free to let me know. I'm I'm open to criticism here, but let's start with the first award, the best offensive play of the year. The nominees were Kenneth Walker's 94 yard touchdown against Rutgers, Kenneth Walker's 75 yard touchdown. The first play of the season against Northwestern Kenneth Walker's 58 yard touchdown against Michigan or Peyton Thorne to Jaden Reed fourth down touchdown in the snow against Penn state. And the winner is Kenneth Walker's 58 yard touchdown run against Michigan really broke that game open. Scott, what do you think? I like it. I'm not surprised the fans liked this. I have a different play though. My, and this is, this is a little bit biased, but I like the Kenneth Walker 94 yard touchdown against Rutgers. I was at the game front row on that sideline that he ran down him and Jalen Naylor basically dapped it up literally right in front of me. Um, I didn't actually see that when the play was going, I caught it on the replay. Um, but that one's a favorite of mine. It was the best play of Kenneth Walker. I saw with my own eyes. I think it was probably objectively the most fun play of the year, right? You had all the Mm-hmm. heroics from Kenneth Walker early, the sprint out, the dap, the and whole pro- thing. Probably the best individual, like just highlight play without yep. giving like context around the time and the score and the, the opponent and everything. That said, the, you know, the breakout run against Michigan with all the emotions wrapped up in that game and all the, um, the stakes in that game, obviously I'm not surprised at one was probably the most, um, impactful play of the season 
I had two ideas for an honorable mention. So Scott, I'll let you pick one of the two. They're both from the same player. Which one was better? The Connor Hayward pit touchdown catch or the Connor Hayward, Nebraska hold my D while I just absolutely barrel through the Nebraska defense play. Yeah. Um, very different plays. The the pit touchdown is unbelievable. When you I mean, knowing Connor Hayward, knowing the kind of athlete that he is, it was an exceptional catch. But it was just that one moment. I mean, he ran a good route, but it was the catch. I'm gonna go with the Nebraska one because <laughs> there was it was a great catch. He landed on top of a guy and kept his feet, and then he ran through another guy. I think you've got three great plays in one, so I'm gonna go with that one. Yeah, that that one really encapsulated the Connor Hayward experience. That one was fun. Uh, moving on to the best defensive play of the year, the nominees were the Chester Kimbrough overtime touchdown or the overtime. Sorry, should have been a touchdown. The overtime interception against Nebraska. The Cal Halliday pick six against Pitt, the Cal Halliday pick six against Indiana, or the Xavier Henderson one-handed interception against Youngstown State. And the winner was the Cal Halliday pick six against Pitt. Kind of really basically put a cap on the Michigan State football season as a whole. Scott, what do you think about the results there? Well, I like that play. Obviously, I like all these plays. I'm a Michigan State fan, but I went with the Kimbrough interception in overtime. Um, I think the Cal Halliday pick six versus Pitt, awesome play, but it didn't win us the game. It sealed the game, but it wasn't like the game winner. That Kimbrough interception was without that play, we might not win that game. Like without the Cal Halliday pick six, I'm still pretty confident we win that game given where Pitt's offense was at the time and where the momentum was the Kimbrough interception. If he doesn't make, that was like a second down play in overtime. I think it was like second and goal. They were pretty close to the end zone. If he doesn't make that play, there's a pretty good chance we lose that game, uh, especially and, given our offense and starting game, on defense in overtime. If you get a turnover, I mean, that's curtains, right? I, I would love when to he see caught the stats that. On it. I thought he was in and if, if defensive players were more well-versed in blocking, that would have won the game. If he'd scored on that play, I guarantee that would have won this vote too. I thought he was going to win because it would have been a walk-off yeah. interception in overtime. Um, I thought he was going to have it. He just, as we learned as the season went on, isn't our fastest corner either. Um, but yeah, he had like a, a parade of like five teammates around him and none of them looked backwards to see if there was anyone worth blocking. <laughs> But nonetheless, like I said, I think that one really was the difference maker in winning that game in the end, or one of the plays. Obviously, there were a few in that game. The Cal Halliday pick six against Pitt. Maybe there's a little recency bias in that because it was the last game we played. Great play, but I still think we win that game without that play. Yeah, so this is another one, too, where I think the best individual highlight play lost the poll because that Xavier Henderson Odell Beckham clone one-handed interception was sick now it was against Youngstown State again obviously we win that game without the pick so the stakes weren't really as as high but that was a heck of a play that uh you know kind of gets lost like four calendar months ago uh but a, a lot of great entries for the best defensive play of the year moving on to 
a vote. Scott, do you, do you, I know you've seen some of them. You haven't seen others. Have you seen the results for the best newcomer? I have, but I think I <laughs> could tell you the vote distribution, I, even if I hadn't. Yeah, I could have told you before I even press send on the tweet, but uh, I had to put it up there. I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, superlative that I think has to be noted. The best newcomer, <laughs> the, the options were Kenneth Walker, Ronald Williams, Jarrett Horst, and Marquis Lowry. The winner, Scott, I, I, I'm sure this is a surprise. Sit down if you're not. Kenneth Walker was the best newcomer, 100% of the vote. Just clean sweep. Uh, I, look, I, I wanted to give a shout out to three other newcomers that I thought came in and played well. Marquis Lowry, we've talked about. Jarrett Horst, I think, you know, if he plays the whole year, you know, people would have a much higher opinion of him as far as his, what he did at left tackle. He was really impressive there. And uh, Ronald Williams, kind of a, you know, up and off, up and down roller coaster throughout the year. He got beat sometimes. He made plays sometimes, but was at least a steady, healthy presence there at, at the other, at one of those cornerback spots. Um, but Kenneth Walker, I mean, he was, he should have been a Heisman finalist and he walked in the door. Uh, about a year ago today. So Kenneth Walker in a landslide. Yeah. I'm, there's opportunities in our podcast to shorten our episodes and we're just going to walk through this one. <laughs> no pun intended. Walk Walker. Um, let's move on because that one's obvious. He is. He's got far. another I mean, award coming up later too. So maybe we'll see breakout. Uh, yeah. Breakout player of the year. This was not Kenneth Walker. I wanted to highlight some guys who, you know, weren't really on the radar at all going into the year uh, or made a significant jump from what they were uh, midseason. And I took Kenneth Walker out because, you know, he, he would win half of these awards if we let him. So the choices were two on offense, two on defense. You had Cal Halliday, linebacker, Jacob Slade, defensive tackle, Peyton Thorne, quarterback or Jaden Reed wide receiver. Uh, you know, you look at Peyton Thorns and really, I mean, we didn't even know if he was going to start heading into week one, Jaden Reed, you look at his statistical difference between last year and this year per game total, however you want to look at it. Jacob Slade, we talked about all year. Cal Halliday, we talked about all year, the breakout player of the year award winner, Cal Halliday linebacker with 50% of the vote. What do you think? Uh, I agree. I voted for Cal Halliday um, and all these guys deserve a big shout out. I agree. Peyton Thorne should be on this list. He had one career start coming into the season um, and he played really well. I think he, again, we've talked about this before. His performance was definitely overshadowed by Kenneth Walker. Peyton Thorne had the best sophomore season of any quarterback in the last couple decades for Michigan state. It was better than Kirk cousins. It was better than Connor cook certainly better than anyone else. Um, it was a great season, but Cal Halliday. Wow. I mean, he had the knack for the big play on defense, two pick sixes, countless other big plays. And really he's a red shirt freshman and already is the center post on this defense. Um, I think it was a great season by him. Jacob Slade, only 5% of the vote. I still think people, We've been talking about him all season. I still think he's being overlooked. Our defensive tackles are great. 
we did not see Jacob Slade as the top going into this season. We were talking about Deshaun Mallory and Jalen hunt being like this dominant one, two punch on the inside and Jacob Slade and Simeon Barrow came out of the season as the top two defensive tackles. I think Simeon Barrow could also have an argument to be on this list. He dealt with a couple injuries this season, so he was slow, but all that to say Cal Halliday, I think had the best season of anyone here relative to expectations relative to, kind of what we thought would happen coming into this year. Peyton Thorne, a close second for me. We'll see if Jacob Slade continues to be overlooked in the next award here. The unsung hero of the year options are Jacob Slade himself, Xavier Henderson, Bryce Berenger, or J.D. Duplain. I wanted to put an offensive lineman on there because nobody talked about the offensive line, and we just kind of – the whole season, we were like, yeah, the offensive line's gotten a lot better from last year. Still not great, but it was a, enough of a, a difference from last year that it helped the offense kind of spark this new uh, high-flying ways. And, uh, Scott, was there anybody after that list of four? Because I had, I had trouble with naming four guys for this one. Um, was there anybody else that you thought should or could have been nominated here, unsung heroes on the team? I think Trey Mosley has an yeah, argument. I thought about um, him. He had a strong season as a number three wide receiver. Sometimes he was at two, three, depending on how you look at it. But he, he really had a knack for those got to have it moments, those third and seven, or you need a touchdown. I mean, he had, you, you put together a highlight package for him. If you haven't seen it, check out standing room Spartans on standing room MSU on Twitter. Uh, scroll back a little ways. Um, he had a lot of plays this year he had a lot of great plays this year a lot of great catches where he was getting hit as soon as the ball got to him or you know he had there was a one one one-handed catch down the sideline can't remember which play it was it was the left sideline it was like a 30 to 40 yard uh corner route and he laid out one-handed catch i still don't think he got the credit he deserved for that Yeah. yeah Um, he had a great season. I agree. Jacob Slade is the unsung hero of the year. I think he had an all big 10 season. I don't think he got the recognition he deserved. And I think it'll take him into next year with a lot of um, high hopes. And I think we have a lot to look forward to with Slade. Um, Xavier Henderson definitely deserves a shout out here. He was the only captain every week this season. He was basically the captain of this entire football team and continued to make plays throughout the season. Um, but he was kind of that guy you you expected that you could rely on. So his great play was overlooked because, well, yeah, he's one of our best players. Well, he should be making the top That plays. plus, the, you know, the real reason I put him on there too is is he was kind of just being that, that weekly captain and everything. He was kind of the face of the secondary who was getting torched all season by opposing offenses and by the fan base. So I was like, just felt like Xavier Henderson's individual performance was getting a bit overshadowed throughout the year. So I wanted to give him a shout out there. He got a few votes, but yeah, Jacob Slade takes home the unsung hero award. Rightfully. So uh, should have been, like you said, should have been a first second team, all big 10 type of player. I thought he had a ridiculous season. I also have a highlight package of him. Uh, if it says anything about the standing room Spartans podcast, the first video highlight package I ever put out with my own video editing skills 
was defensive tackle Jacob Slade. We're hoping to get him on the podcast sometime this offseason. I've been talking with him a little bit, so stay tuned for that. But he had a heck of a year. Hopefully people don't forget that, and and we will kind of put him into Sharpie as a starting defensive tackle next year and feel really good about it. Best position group of the year. We're thinking not only that top guy, but the depth as well. You're looking at who's the backup guy that had to come in for injuries and, and things like that. So four nominees, the offensive line as a whole, the defensive line as a whole, uh, I think this could have been a little different if I put the defensive tackles now that I, I am looking at this offensive line, defensive line, wide receivers or running backs. The wide receivers kind of ran away with this one, 62% of the vote. I think a lot of it goes to what you spoke on there with Trey Mosley, Jaden Reed, obviously awesome year uh, over a thousand yards. And then you had Jalen, uh, Jalen, I keep confused. Jaden Reed, Jalen Naylor. I, I'll never get this right. Okay. Jalen Naylor had some awesome games. You remember that Rutgers game where he just went played out of his mind. Uh, and then Trey Mosley, who quietly put together a really good year. Montori Foster was making plays. Keon Coleman stepped in and came make, made a few plays. So top to bottom, the wide receivers really made an impact up and down the, the depth chart. Defensive line, I thought would have been a, a closer second than it was. Uh, running backs actually were the second place. And I think that's just because Kenneth Walker was that good. I think we saw pretty clearly what was behind Kenneth Walker wasn't uh, that obviously dragged them down, but yeah, wide receivers, I thought should have won the poll defensive line. I thought would have been a closer second, but um, to no avail here, the wide receivers best position group of the year. Agree. Disagree. Yeah, it's kind of a philosophical thing here. If you, if you're just looking at the starters, right, you get Kenneth Walker against our starting wide receivers. I think Kenneth Walker has a pretty good argument, but if you're looking at the position group as a whole, um, kind of the average talent level of the entire position room, I think wide receivers is the right choice here. I mean, there was so much talent across the board. Um, Courtney Hawkins continues to recruit really well. I think this is going to be one of our best position groups for years to come with the guys we have coming in, the freshmen this year, the recruits we're looking at for the next cycle. Um, It's just going to be great to watch them develop. We've got a quarterback of the future. We've got a quarterback pipeline. I think this passing game, and we'll talk a little bit about the offense, I think, in the next one. But, um, yeah, I think this offense is going to be led by the wide receivers the next few years. And what more can you ask for from a group than than what we saw this season? Yeah, I'm I'm wondering if I put the D tackles, because then you're specifically looking at Slade, Barrow, Hanson was in there quite a bit. Hunt was in there. Mallory was in there. And and for just one small group, they top to bottom had a heck of a year. And I think will continue to moving forward. Um, assistant coach of the year. This was kind of a fun one. I, I thought I would know the result, but it was actually tough kind of narrowing this down. Chris Kapilovich, offensive line coach, Jay Johnson, offensive coordinator, Courtney Hawkins, who you just mentioned there, wide receivers coach. And Scotty Hazelton, defensive coordinator. Unsurprisingly, I think uh, Jay Johnson kind of runs away with it here. We talked about it, man. Like he, he was nominated for the assistant coach of the year, the Broyles award. Uh, he was just dialed in. It seemed like all season long with his play calling 
and just finding different ways to get guys the ball, get Jaden Reed the ball, making pretty gutsy decisions on fourth downs. And uh, Jay Johnson was just in his bag all year, had a tremendous season and was a hire that was really questionable going back to when, when Mel Tucker was putting together his staff. Jay Johnson was a guy that we both talked about being like, well, you know, I, I don't hate the hire. I don't love the hire, but given where we were at, remember in the hiring process, Mel Tucker got brought on so late that the whole carousel was had basically stopped spinning. So the way I looked at, I guess, Jay Johnson was kind of, well, he's a guy you're familiar with. You'll bring him in for a couple of years. If it works out great. And if it doesn't, you can pretty easily just chalk it up to like, Hey, look, there was nobody available at the pool at the time. I brought in somebody I felt comfortable with it and uh, you know, we'll move on and, and find somebody else. But Jay Johnson has, has really made a name for himself this year, putting himself in contention for a, a head coaching job down at Louisiana, even so uh, Jay Johnson deservedly won this one assistant coach of the year. Yeah. He, uh, he plays to win. And that's something that, I think some offenses in years past have not done. Um, you know, obviously you go back to previous regimes and play great defense, control the pace and play offense, not to lose. Jay Johnson plays to win. We talked about the the fourth down Jaden Reed call against Penn state. That wasn't the only one he had the fourth down uh, Jaden Reed corner route against Michigan. Wasn't a touchdown, but got us down to the two. We scored the next play. You the had countless flea flickers countless plays this year where he said you know i could take the conservative route i could putz our way down the field control the ball i'm gonna go deep and you know you look at like the michigan game did it bite us early sure we we threw the deep ball on that fourth down on the first drive through a pick but five times out of ten that's a touchdown the other five times you know three times out of ten that's an incompletion two times out of ten it's an interception he said i like my chances it didn't work out came back kept calling the same kind of plays the rest of the game and we ended up winning he plays to win he puts his players in a position to take advantage of their strengths he doesn't ask guys to do things that they're not capable of and he makes sure to put guys in a position like i said to do what they're really good at and i think Early this season, you said he's been he was in his bag all year. Early this season, it definitely took our fan base, I think, a little bit of time to warm up to his style. Um, but by the end of the season, I think everyone is on board with Jay Johnson. And I think he he's just his offense is fun to watch. It's a great blend, I think, of a modern open offense, but also has the ability to run up the middle to push guys around without committing too many guys to the inside. Um, it's just a fun, it's a fun position group. Scotty Hazleton, zero volts, maybe next year. Uh, he'll get a little bit of love. I think Ron Burton could have been on this list as well. Um, obviously he's about no Pete longer too, at Michigan, right? Yeah. Same, although, not there. although no offense to William Peegler. I know. I know. It's not, I think he had kind of a pretty good hand dealt to him this season. You look at the guys behind Kenneth Walker and you're like, I mean, they, they were probably a little better than last year, but like not leaps and bounds. I think Kenneth Walker was the biggest factor. It's like, uh, I don't want to compare anybody to Adam Gase, former Michigan state Spartan Adam Gase, but, uh, he basically floated like 15 years of an NFL coaching career because he was the offensive coordinator for Peyton Manning once. And it was like, well, 
yeah, you don't really have to do much. You know, it's a pretty easy gig to to go out there and score 30 points a game. So, yeah, he got dealt a pretty good hand. We'll see how he does down there in uh, Florida, right, that Peekler got yep. picked up by. So yep. best wishes to him. Moving on here to the best moment of the year, one individual moment that stood out above all else. The four nominees I chose were Charles Brantley, Michigan interception that, you know, completely sealed that one. I, there were a couple moments from the Michigan game that I thought about putting, but I was like, all right, we're just going to put one. The Charles Brantley interception was on there. Uh, the Jaden Reed punt return versus Nebraska that basically single-handedly brought us back into that game. The Cal Halliday pick six against Pitt that put that rubber stamp on the season. And the Kenneth Walker 75-yard touchdown on the first play from scrimmage of the entire football season against Northwestern. So kind of unsurprisingly, you know, it's it's against Michigan. So it definitely has the stakes there. The Charles Brantley interception runs away with 92.7% of the vote. And that doesn't really surprise me. So you can talk on that one. I, I want to focus a couple things. I, I brought it up for a couple different plays, but I want to make sure that that Kenneth Walker thinking about And we had two plays on here, really the Cal Halliday pick six that put the seal at the end of the year, but that Kenneth Walker, you go back the first play of the season Michigan State fans listening put yourself back in those shoes close your eyes think about what was that late August early September and it was a night uh no yeah it was a night game right Friday night and uh you're you're going into the season you're thinking man last year was kind of a disaster but we we won a couple big games and we got a couple transfers like Let's see. I don't know. We'll see what happens this year. We haven't had a good offense in years, so maybe we'll be a little better, but all right. And you remember that at that moment, if, if you were watching on cable, Michigan state was playing on ESPN, right? And, and you had to flip to ESPN too, because whatever game was on ESPN went to overtime or whatever. So there were probably people who voted in this poll who didn't even watch that play live, right? Um, who, who didn't, you know, get the memo. You had to switch the other channel, but we get the kickoff. All right. Offense is out there first. Let's see who's that starting quarterback. Let's see who's, you know, we didn't even know if, if Peyton Thorne is going to be a starter and he hands the ball off to Kenneth Walker. He runs for a 75 yard touchdown on the first play of the season. And, you know, looking back, that became a very normal thing, but it, it was kind of that, you know, play to set the tone for a, for a really special season by a really special player. So it didn't get my vote, but it was one that I was, I, I thought should be recognized again because it was so long ago. Yeah, I was actually camping and I had just enough uh, cell service to, to stream the game. And so I was just sitting there next to the campfire. I had the game ready to go. I, you know, like you said, I didn't really know what to expect. Northwestern was pretty good last year. So going into the game, we're like, we might win. We might lose. I, I, I think personally, if I'm remembering this right, we were, it was pretty close to a pick them. I, I don't was, think either team. They were favored by like three. And then they had some quarterback 
drama. Somebody got hurt or something, and then we were favored by three. But it, it was like a three-point spread. But like you said, no one really knew what to expect. We'd been hearing a lot of grumblings about Kenneth Walker, a lot of players saying, you know, people don't really know what they're in for. And we're like, okay, yeah, but, you know, guys hype each other up all the time. Who knows how much truth there is to that. And then he breaks out, explodes onto the scene. And it was it was an awesome moment. Um, that game, we continued to pummel them. And that was the first time where all the fans got to kind of sit there and say, oh, okay, there was probably some truth to what everyone was saying all summer. And when you look back now and you look behind the scenes videos, you just accumulate kind of a sense for this team and what they went through the last year. They knew they were better than good. They knew they had not just a competent big 10 team. They knew they had a good big 10 football team. And I think even the fans, myself included overlooked what their expectations were coming into this season. I think they expected to have a season much like what they did. I don't think a lot of fans did. Obviously the national folks didn't expect it. I think they really thought they had a good chance to, to put double digit wins on the board and compete for the conference. And that's exactly what they did. And Mel Tucker, he talks about his standard. His standard is I want to go for national titles now. And he talks about it in his press conferences. And I think that that play really announced it. Hey, we've been talking, we haven't been talking much this summer, but we know what we've got. Now you get to see it. That said, the Chuck Brantley play, that whole game. Have you seen Squid Game? Bits and pieces. It's so one really... of the games, I, I'm not a huge fan, but one of the games is the the tug of war to the death, right? Yeah. And I, I did see they're that pulling one. each other back and forth. And that's kind of how this game felt like, obviously not those kinds of stakes but tons of stakes on the line as far as football games go the game was just whipping back and forth it was this powder keg of emotion and that interception lit the fuse and spartan stadium just exploded i mean i don't know how anything could compete with a moment like that in terms of one single moment for the season unless we won the big 10 went to the obviously that would change things but the season that we had absolutely the best moment of the year yeah, that I mean, it's hard to argue against that. So moving on here, uh, kind of related, best game of the year? Well, I just eliminated Michigan because, duh. So Michigan would have obviously run away with a probably similar 100% clip uh, on that one. So I took out Michigan for obvious reasons, and that left me with four options. At Miami, which was just a fun non-conference game that you don't see too often, I wasn't fortunate enough to travel down there, but people went down, had a you know week weekend in Miami, and it, just a good time, great win, good program win. Versus Nebraska goes without saying an overtime win. It, you know, it was a bit ugly, but it's an overtime win, which is always exciting and fun. Versus Penn State in the snow globe, and then the Peach Bowl against Pitt. You had the comeback. You had some electric plays. The Jalen Naylor one-handed catch. Now, the winner, I think, is rightfully so. I talked about it after on that that post-game podcast glowingly. That Penn State game was one of the most enjoyable television experiences that I can remember in a long time. Just fields covered in snow. You can't read what yard line they're on. You don't know if they're on the 40 yard line of, of, uh, you know, opposing territory or if they're on their own 30, right? Like you get up and go take a piss and then come back and you have no idea where they are on the field. 
because you can't see any of the, the markers. You can barely see where the first down is. And then by the end of the game, they, they weren't even showing the yellow first down line because, you know, obviously it, in those conditions, it was impossible to judge where 10 yards would be. You had no idea. Was that a first down? Was that, was that, you know, three yards away from a first down? It was so much fun. And then on top of that late game drama, you know, a lot of big plays that Penn state game was, it wasn't, you know, I don't want to say that it rivaled the Michigan game because nothing ever will, but it was as close of a game as you could, because it was just a blast. And on top of that, you know, you bring home the land grant trophy, which, which is notable in itself. So I thought that one should have been a runaway. It got 40%. Miami was right behind it. I'm guessing a lot of people who voted were probably down in Miami and it's hard to blame them for voting there. But uh, Scott, what do you think about the game of the year? Other than Michigan, of course. Yeah, I think the Penn state game, it, it got my vote. I think it is for all the reasons that you stated it, the winner here. Um, Miami though, similar to what I was talking about with Northwestern, we still didn't really know. We're like, okay, we got a couple wins under our belt. The Northwestern one, we, we drubbed them. Youngstown State did what we needed to do. But Miami, and especially at the time, Miami was the measuring stick. Okay, if you can get through Miami, we might actually have something for Big Ten play here. Um, and Derek King at the time was a Heisman contender. Well, a preseason Heisman watch list guy I wouldn't say necessarily he was a contender in the way that he was playing this season but big name big quarterback um and we went down there in Miami and won they were talking about the heat will Michigan State be able to handle it and and you factor in like you said a lot of folks got to go down make a weekend out of it down in Miami but Penn State it was a Big Ten football game it was it was an awesome Big Ten football game and like you said, you had all the fun from the snow. You had the late game heroics. Um, it was all there and it was the last game of the year. So you get to cap the season with a really fun game. So like you said, U of M obvious favorite here, but I think Penn state um, deserves this one. Moving on the comeback player or unit of the year, three options, the offensive line, Connor Hayward or Bryce Berenger. Uh, Mason pointed out to us in the group chat that Connor Hayward could be considered both a player and a unit on his own. But uh, yeah, I thought the offensive line rebounding from a tough 2020 to have a decent 2021 Connor Hayward. We know all about his roller coaster of a career at Michigan state, putting a stamp on that. And Bryce Berenger and people forget, like he had some bad punts in 2020 and he, he came out just dropping bombs all year here this year. So Connor Hayward, not surprisingly a fan favorite runs away with a 95% of the vote for Connor Hayward, who is heading to the combine in a couple months here. Um, any qualms with that one, Scott? Well, let's just reflect on what you just said. Connor Hayward fan <laughs> favorite because a year ago, that's two years how big ago, of a comeback it was. <laughs> Connor Hayward was, you know, in those Joey Hauser shoes in those Rocky Lombardi shoes and now he's a fan favorite. We're talking about ex- how excited we are to watch him at the NF Connor Hayward, watching him at the NFL combine. Um, how could you not root for the guy this year? I certainly had my issues with the way that he was playing. He just, I don't think he was born to be a running back at the end of the day. And he found his home. He, all it took was Jay Johnson coming into town and seeing the vision and uh, 
wow, what a season he had. I do think just kind of for fun here, Rocky Lombardi gets an honorable mention for me. I know he wasn't <laughs> on our team. I get it. But last year he had a dreadful season. And this year Mac he Chan. won the Mac and I, I didn't actually look at the accolades, but I'm sure he won some cause he had a really good season this year. Um, so shout out Rocky. Um, obviously he's not up for this award. He's not a Michigan state player anymore. I just wanted to throw that in there because after the season he had last year and all the crap we piled on him, not just us, our entire fan base. Um, good for him, but yeah, Connor Hayward, similar redemption arc uh, certainly deserves this one. And yeah, it's kind of, I'm, I'm kind of bummed that we're not going to get to watch Connor Hayward in the green and white anymore. As crazy as it is to be saying that. <laughs> that, that really does encapsulate why he's the clear option here because knowing what we knew a calendar year ago today and saying Connor, Con- Connor Hayward fan favorite, that, that pretty much puts it all into perspective. Uh, I mean, he was in, he was in the transfer portal. People, right. I don't know if people forget that. I forget that sometimes like he was one foot out the door, literally. And people are pretty happy about it. Like I, I'm on Twitter quite a bit and you know, I, I see you hiding behind your keyboards. I I know what you were saying about him when he was heading out the door. So, well, we'll certainly be rooting for him. If he finds his way to, to an NFL field, I don't know what kind of, if a sports book was, giving you a Connor Hayward section. I don't know what the odds would have been two years ago to see Connor Hayward at the NFL combine or in an NFL uniform one day. Um, but he has certainly beat the odds. Yeah. So three more awards, two of them very directly related. You have, first of all, the offensive player of the year candidates, Peyton Thorne, Kenneth Walker, Jaden Reed, and Connor Hayward. Uh, runaway winner here obviously the surprising part is that kenneth walker actually didn't get a hundred percent of the votes uh peyton peyton thorne garnered more than zero votes is about all i can tell you there somebody didn't vote for kenneth walker is the surprising maybe it was a mistake they accidentally clicked the wrong one again shout out peyton thorne great season he will come up in a second here so we can talk about that but kenneth walker um any any final words on just one of the best individual seasons in Michigan state football history. I was a little young to remember Charles Rogers at Michigan state. Um, What were we like seven or eight at the time when he was playing there? So since I started really following football to the point that I knew player names and I could keep track of everything, you know, maybe middle school time, Kenneth Walker had the best, season of a Michigan state player I've ever seen. Um, Certainly on offense defense, it might be hard to compare, but I can't really think of anyone on the defensive side who would be able to maybe dark West in 2013 when he won the Jim Thorpe award. Uh, But even then, I mean, Kenneth Walker doorstep of the Heisman should have been a finalist. I don't know how you can, I don't really blame someone for voting for Peyton Thorne. I, I truly think he was overlooked. <laughs> I think he had an exceptional quarterback season, but this season was the Kenneth Walker season. Yeah. I mean, the next award I created solely for the other guys, it was the offensive player of the year, not named Kenneth Walker. Wanted to give somebody else some, some shout out here and interesting results. So my four nominees were the other three from the previous award, Peyton Thorne, Jaden Reed, Connor Hayward, and the fourth nominee, I threw in Jalen Naylor uh, in there. <clears throat> we had a tie, and rightfully so. 
former teammates, best friends, best buddies can share the non-Kenneth Walker Offensive Player of the Year award. Peyton Thorne and Jaden Reed, each with precisely 49.1% of the vote. Scott, do you want to tie break this one or do you want to just leave it as a tie? I, like I feel it like as a it's, tie. it's only fitting with given their narrative. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're a unit in themselves, right? Like you have your offensive line, your wide receivers, whatever. I feel like Peyton Thorne and Jaden Reed is like a micro position group. Because they better get so... drafted by the same team too. Wouldn't that be great? Like you get the Joe <laughs> Burrow with Jamar Chase and every, you know, those whole narratives. And then you get your Peyton Thorne with your Jaden Reed. Um, that'd be fun. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's perfect. I think neither one has the season they had without the other one, obviously. Um, and they know each other so well. It's, it, sometimes it looks, it, it feels like they're sharing a brain out there. Um, and, and I think it's, it's perfect that they're tied. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna yeah, touch it. That was my favorite result by far. Just the, the tie between the two buddies last award. I know we've been going long. If you're still with us, then wow, you're really dedicated to the pod and we really appreciate you. If you haven't left a review, you are clearly dedicated to us and you know how much we would appreciate it. So go do that while you listen to the unveiling of the last award. If you're on Spotify, if you're on Apple, do it right now. You can do it while you're listening. The defensive player of the year, four candidates, Xavier Henderson, Jacob Slade, Jacob Panishuk, and Cal Halliday. Uh, everybody got votes here. Everybody got a pretty pretty decent share of them. Cal Halliday, though, the winner at 45%. Ran away a little bit with it, but there was a pretty even distribution among the rest of them. Cal Halliday, the defensive player of the year. I personally, I would have gone Jacob Slade. I think the position he plays doesn't get enough attention, and that's the reason he didn't. But snap in, snap out basis, Jacob Slade, I thought was the best defender on Michigan State all year long. Cal Halliday, though, I mean, had a heck of a year. I'm not trying to take away from it. Um, you, you mentioned a lot about him earlier about his playmaking nature, but uh, I thought Jacob Slade should have won the award uh, if it was my vote. But I, I think four worthy can't remember the pace Jacob Panishuk was on earlier in the year with his sack and pressure numbers. Um, he had, he ended up with a really good year and Xavier Henderson. We talked about just a sure tackler always making that, that big play to wrap somebody up to, I should say, to prevent a big play um, and, and made a couple big plays on his own tackles at, at or behind the line of scrimmage. Remember when he popped that guy on Michigan, um, that one-handed interception, he had an awesome year as well. So four worthy candidates, Cal Halliday comes away the winner. Yeah. If you look at the season and the way that it played out, um, Jacob Panashuk had a great season Drew Beasley was also on track to have a great season until he was injured and missed about a month. If you could combine them into one player, it's interesting when you look at the stats, uh, Beasley came out of the gates with his hair on fire. He got hurt. As soon as he got hurt, Panashuk's stats start flowing in immediately. And then when Beasley comes back, Beasley kind of takes the reins again. So we always had at least one defensive end that was playing really, really, really well. They just, neither of them did it the entire season. Cal Halliday didn't have a bad game. Uh, Ohio State, okay, but everybody had a bad game that that day. Uh, Cal Halliday, I said it earlier, he was the center post of this defense. He, You need, especially with only two linebackers out there, 
And you don't really have that middle linebacker guy. Quiveris Crouch was up and down. You had Harvey at the end of the year at that other spot. Cal Halliday was kind of the heartbeat of the defense. Um, I do agree. I think the guys in the trenches deserve more credit. It's just like the offensive line. It's not the biggest stat collecting position. It's not even, even when they make great plays, they're not that flashy all the time. If you look at Jacob Slade's highlights, he put together some of his best plays are just driving a guard two yards into the backfield and then arm hooking the running back great play, but it might not even make a generic highlight list because it just doesn't look that exciting. Um, but Cal Halliday, the pick sixes, the leadership, the tackles, the coverage. I mean, he was, and he's a redshirt freshman. So yeah, I think Cal Halliday is my winner. I love the Jacob Slade pick only 12% of the vote. Uh, but this, I'm glad this was the last one because the results are probably as evenly distributed as any of our, um, any of our awards here. And that's because we did have a few really strong defensive players. Xavier Henderson, again, probably gets a little bit overlooked because we expected him to be great. And he played good to great the whole year. Didn't really exceed expectations. Didn't really fall short of them either. Cal Halliday certainly exceeded expectations. I think that garnered him quite a few votes in this one. All right. And that does it. That is your 2021 superlatives as we kind of start to turn the page here to 2022 and leave 2021 behind us. Obviously, you know, throughout the whole off season, we'll be talking a lot about performances and, and players and, and how they project moving forward. But, you know, we talked about revisiting our preseason predictions. We we've done our superlatives and really the next step is to kind of start turning the page here. So we've got national signing day coming up. We've got spring ball kicking off in a little over a month. Got a lot of stuff here around the corner. So if you're not subscribed, make sure you do. And uh, we've got a lot of fun stuff coming up for you as far as content goes, as well as just other ideas as well. We've, we've talked about revamping the website a little bit more. We've, we've started talking about YouTube and how we can incorporate that. So stay with us. We're just going to keep growing this thing because of you guys. We really appreciate your support and continued support. And uh, we're going to do a couple contests here coming up as well. So keep an eye out for that until next week. I uh, hope you guys have a great week. Hope you enjoyed the football yesterday as you're listening to this. And uh, we'll have uh, a lot of coverage here about national signing day, which like I said, is kind of right around the corner here. So Scott, until next week, we will, uh, we will talk soon. Go Bengals, go 49ers. And hope everybody has a great start to the week. Go green. Go white. Take care, folks.